All right, good morning, church. Good to see you. Glad you guys are here today. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 9. If you're using a scripture journal, that'll be page 40. We will work through uh, verses 8 through 12 today. Two things I need to let you know about uh, that are coming up really soon, just very quickly, this coming Saturday is Volunteer Appreciation Day. So if you've served in any capacity at True North in 2021, then uh, you're invited to meet us at the Alaska Wildlife Conservation Center, uh, which is just south of Girdwood, kind of near Portage. Uh, We're going to meet at 10 a.m. on Saturday, and the church will cover your admission, just a chance for you to bring your family uh, and hang out all together and do something just fun for us to say thank you to you and appreciate you for, for helping us this year. And then two, uh, the day after that, a week from today, Sunday the 18th, we're going to meet at Cuddy Family Park in Midtown for our second Church in the Park of this summer. So I'm telling you that explicitly now. We've announced it like nine million times, but I'm telling you again, because if you come here at 9.15, you'll get to just pray in the sanctuary for like an hour and 45 minutes, and then you can come to the park, and we'll worship together at 11. So if you are a life group leader, uh, you have my permission right now to text anybody that you need to who's in your group and remind them, make sure that everybody is on the same page about next week, especially anybody who's not here this morning who you know is planning on attending a week from today. So Exodus chapter 9, beginning in verse 8, let's hear how the story of the conflict between God and Pharaoh advances. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. And it shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and it shall become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. And so they did this. They took soot from the kiln, and they stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all of the Egyptians." But the Lord, Yahweh, hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So Yahweh has been working on Egypt's idols since the beginning of Exodus chapter 7. First, he attacked their culture. He went after the the Nile River itself and the significance that the Nile had in the life of Egypt. It touched everything. I mean, it was really... uh, representative of the wisdom of the age, of the way that they uh, understood the source of life and the meaning of life. And so God attacked those things directly. With the second plague, he went after the idol of family. He dismantled the identity the Egyptians derived from their land, what we might call the idol of place. He showed them that they could not trust their idols to keep them safe. This was the plague of flies, that their great gods in the heavens that they supposedly uh, could trust with their lives were really futile to do anything to keep them safe against Yahweh. And then two weeks ago, the most recent plague that we looked at, God disqualified the idolatry of sex, showing the men and women of Egypt that there was more to their identity than their sexuality, um, that they would never find their purpose in who they slept with. And so today's plague, unlike the previous plagues, Uh, is a little more obvious. What God is going after here is more plain. We've had to do a little bit of digging, almost a little bit of cultural archaeology along the way to understand the connection between uh, the plagues themselves, the gods of Egypt, and then our modern idols. But the idol in view today is easy to understand. It's the idolatry of the worship of health. When God sends the boils to the Egyptians, he is taking away what it seems like he is taking away from them. 
their self-security, the identity they find in their ability to perform, to be healthy, to move and live and work and act according to their own will. In ancient Egypt, there were several gods and goddesses who were worshipped for playing a role in the health of the people. But there was only one who was considered to be responsible both for sending and removing outbreaks of serious illness. And that goddess's name is Sekhmet. Sekhmet. Sekhmet uh, had a priesthood that was all over the nation of Egypt. And uh, in some ways, we owe a little bit of our modern understanding of medicine and biology to these men who were a part of this priesthood. They did a lot of dissecting. I don't know how much they learned necessarily along the way, but they were really good at cutting dead people open to see what was inside. And so this group of men together would write letters and send correspondence back and forth. And in the ancient world, they were really viewed as, as like the leading edge uh, research organization. It was they who made the most advancements in medicine, though they were minuscule compared to what we know now. Uh, there was significance. There was meaning behind the worship of Sekhmet. It was not just a, sort of a, a platitude-based participation in some superstitious thing. People genuinely believed that the priests of Sekhmet were able to, at a metaphysical level, interact with their biology, and that by making sacrifices and worshiping and giving enough of their money and their time to Sekhmet that they could guarantee a longer life, that they could guarantee a better life, that they could appeal to this god to remove sickness and disease or to protect them from its arrival in the first place. Sekhmet was seen as a sort of protector of Egypt, but also as one of its judges. And she was believed to be able to send and remove epidemics national level, regional level, large scale attacks against different people. So because of this, because of kind of this philosophy baked into the pantheon, the, myth, the mythology of Egypt, uh, the Egyptians are very familiar with widespread disease. And I think uniquely, different from the previous plagues here, Yahweh runs a little bit of a risk. I mean, he doesn't really because he's God and he'll do what he wants and he'll have his way. But from our human point of view, Jesus, Yahweh is running the risk of potentially doing something and then having one of Egypt's gods take credit for it. If there had been an epidemic that the priests of Sekhmet could predict, they would have spun that into propaganda. They would have found a way to attach some kind of spiritual meaning to it that wasn't there. Unfortunately, You've probably seen modern religious people do this. Regardless of what faith group they belong to, we still have a tendency to put some kind of spiritual sticker on tornadoes and floods and hurricanes because we want them to mean more than maybe they do. Maybe they're just representative of a fallen world. But in this particular case, I think there's a reason that unlike the previous plagues, God does not send Moses to Pharaoh in advance. There's no advance warning. There's no opportunity for Pharaoh the night before this plague is going to start to call together the priests of Sekhmet and say, hey, get the word out. Make sure everybody knows that Sekhmet is going to be sending a plague of boils tomorrow and that Sekhmet is judging us because we've allowed these dirty, filthy, subhuman Israelite people to dwell in our midst. That would have been the angle of Pharaoh. He would have capitalized on what Yahweh was going to do had he had the opportunity. And so I think it shows the wisdom of Yahweh here that he simply tells Moses, grab the soot, go in to where he can see you, and do this thing in his presence. Make sure he can see you. This is going to be important, okay? Now, why I think this is cool in another level is because the, the plague of boils is not just for the common people of Egypt. In prior epidemics in the life and the history of Egypt, which are recorded in history in their hieroglyphics, there's a lot of record of this happening, Typically, the pharaoh sort of reaches a certain level in the national hierarchy, and everybody above that line doesn't get affected. They can keep themselves clean. They can afford to stay away from the common people. They employ or enslave people to do their work so that they can keep their hands clean. 
you probably saw in 2020 that there were certain people who had a, a certain level of status, maybe a certain amount of money, who were able to continue traveling and gathering and getting together and throwing parties and hanging out, and they came under uh, some criticism for that. that one famous celebrity family in particular decided to have a pretty big party in the middle of the pandemic. And thankfully, none of them seemed to get COVID or pass it along, but that was a symptom, that was a product of the resources that they had. Similarly, in the life of Egypt, the upper crust can keep their hands clean. They can employ priests to go and do the work of doctors. They can employ slaves and other servants to go into the field and and drag the rotting carcasses of all of their livestock, which are still lying, baking in the sun all over the nation, put them in heaps and burn them. They're not worried about being exposed to disease, but because of the way that God sends this plague, there's no getting out from underneath it. There's no check that Pharaoh can write that can keep his hands clean. The Bible says that the boils came upon the magicians, which matters, we're going to get to that in a minute, and it came upon all, everybody, all of the people of Egypt. For the priests of Sekhmet to be afflicted was an insult to them. In the same way, if you think back to the plague of frogs, the people of Egypt couldn't kill the frogs. That was considered to be blasphemous, so they just had to deal with it. There's a similar level of kind of having the dignity of the priests of Sekhmet drug through the mud by they themselves becoming sick. They were supposed to be the experts at healing. It was their job to know how to be in contact with a sick person without taking on that disease. That was where they found their pride. That was the only real proof they could give, that they had some kind of spiritual blessing from Sekhmet, yet their boils are so bad they can't even get up on their feet and stand in the presence of Moses. They can't even contend with him. That's how severe this disease is for them. They become literally unclean because their skin is bubbling and cracking. I don't know if you've ever had a boil or more than one boil. There's blood and pus draining out of their skin into their clothing, scabbing up. to. I mean, when they take their clothes off each night, if they even want to do that, they're probably ripping their wounds back open fresh. Infection is spreading. We're talking like gangrene levels of whole limbs being lost because of this epidemic upon the people. But more importantly, in the arena of the spiritual struggle between our living God, Yahweh, and the gods of Egypt, the priests become ceremonially unclean. And I think that what that means is that they are not able to even go into the temple of Sekhmet. So it's not that they just can't do their job functionally. It's that on principle, they can't compromise. Their pride is so tied to the idea of this religious system that they won't actually break their own rules in order to seek the help of their goddess that's supposed to help them heal, which is what it always looks like when you become self-righteous, even if you wrap it in nice religious clothing. You reach a point where you sort of hit this catch-22, and not even you can do enough to meet your own standards that you've put over and above what God has said is necessary for worship. These priests could not medically treat the boils of the Egyptians because their skin was blistered and cracked, which is a practical and tangible victory over the futility of their idolatry. God is giving them an opportunity here. In a way, Yahweh is setting the stage for Sekhmet to flex on him and on all of the people of Israel. What better circumstances than for the goddess of healing in Egypt to have all of her priests out of the way and to have every single Egyptian sick? What a perfect opportunity for her to show her power. Yet what happens? Crickets, nothing, silence from her. There's no movement. There's no, not a single person can step up and say, I've been healed by Sekhmet. They are miserable. They are afflicted, all of them all over their bodies. In many ways, it was like what we lived through in 2020, except on steroids. I mean, to the point where the medical workers themselves couldn't even give medical work because of how afflicted they were. The boils disqualified the priesthood of Sekhmet. They physically crippled the people of Egypt, and they proved to us that human health is in Yahweh's hands, 
not Sekhmet's hands. Sekhmet's futility is broadcasted in a way that couldn't have been communicated better had Pharaoh himself made a decree because every home in Egypt now has all the proof they need as their boils fester and spread that their goddess is unable to help them. This plague, the plague of boils, identifies its targeted idol plainly. And in a similar way, health, if health is the idol in view here, I believe health is the first of the six idols that God has gone after that we can't actually feel until it's removed from us. So I want to say that to you again, and I want you to think about that for just a second. Health is the first of these six idols that you won't even know you are worshiping until you have lost it. Because it's derived internally. The first five of these idols are derived externally. They're all things that we sort of walk up to at some point in our life. We're introduced to them. We get to know them. And then we fall in love with them. And then we decide to add them to our lives. We decide to bring the worship of them into the center of our being. But we are born concerned with our own health. And to a degree, that is good for us to do. It is not, I'm not saying it's wrong for you to, to, to think about or, or have any thoughts of annual physical or going to the doctor or taking your vitamins. I don't think God is against those things. He's certainly not anti-medicine. But the operative difference between health and culture or health and family or health and place or health and safety or health and sex is that health is baked into us from the beginning. And so we have to be especially careful and especially on guard because if it's a part of who we are, then it's connected to our ego and it will be deeply, deeply personal to us even if we are followers of Jesus should that idol begin to slip between our fingers in a way that we can't control. Before we go a lot further, I want to define my terms here. When I talk about the idol of health, I've already given you one caveat. I'll probably do that a couple more times today to make sure that you know that I'm not attacking you wanting to be healthy. I want to define for you what I mean when I talk about the idol of health. It's two things. It's the worship of being whole or well or strong or just emotionally or physically better by some metric, just better than you are today. And it's worship. That's what we're talking about when we talk about idolatry. It's needing that thing to deliver for you because you find identity and purpose and meaning in it that is not healthy to be placed in that thing. And then second, it's placing your faith in modern medicine to either sustain and or extend your life. So the worship of being whole, being well, emotionally, physically better, or faith in medical practices to sustain and extend your life. Being healthy is not the problem. Eating well, exercise, blood tests, imaging, antibiotics, vaccines, these are not things that are inherently evil. But we are. We are experts at taking good gifts from God and holding them up between us and him so that they become our gods in function. They play the role of a god in our life. And in sending the sixth plague, what Yahweh is showing us is that he's subtly able to customize his judgments to match the crimes against himself and his people. Afflicting a nation with boils probably seems like the least subtle thing that you could do, right? To just, for God to snap his fingers and suddenly everybody's skin is broken open. But there's an element to the nature of the way that Moses delivers this plague over to the people of Egypt that I want to point out to you. So if you don't mind, look back at verse 8, the first verse that we read today, if you have a copy of God's word. When Yahweh gives his instructions to Moses and Aaron, notice what he tells them to do and how he tells them to do it. This is important. Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln. If you are a note taker, it would be helpful to underline soot from the kiln. Soot matters and kiln matters. I'm going to tell you why in just a second. And then here's the mode. Let Moses 
throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. Now that's dramatic, so that makes sense, right? If we're just trying to make a statement, that's cool. You've seen NBA players chalk their hands before a game and then throw the chalk dust up in the air. It's just something that kind of feels cool about that. But there's a deeper historical, ethnic, religious context to what's going on here that I want to explain to you quickly. When an Egyptian high priest facilitated any kind of sacrifice, doesn't matter what the priesthood was, this would be true for the priests of Sekhmet or Apis or Hathor or any of the other gods that we've talked about so far, any of the pantheon of Egypt, all of them receive sacrifices essentially the same way. The last step when you burn something to a god or goddess in Egypt is to take a handful of the soot and the ashes, whatever is left after the fire has burned out, and to either throw it out over the surface of the Nile River, if you're in a city that's close enough to do that, or if not, to go to the top of the temple or the top of a high building and throw a handful of those ashes onto the wind. It's symbolic. It doesn't actually do anything, but the religious significance for the Egyptians was that this blessing, the blessing of whatever offering was just made, would, would blow or would flow into the lives of all of the Egyptian people on a national level. This would be happening all the time. If you were working outside, you would be getting bits of ash in every breath that you took. And you would have received that as some sort of comforting presence. The smell of smoke in Egypt was a good thing to you. You would have thought, man, it's just great to know that we're appeasing the gods and they're on our side. And every little good thing that happened in your life, you'd be giving credit to whatever god or goddess it was that you thought represented that thing to you. God took that ritual act of blessing in the lives of the Egyptians and he turned it instead into a curse. So remember, weeks ago, months ago, we identified Moses as the prototype of the priesthood in Israel. There have been priests of God along the way, but as far as a regulated, organized priesthood, Moses is the first example of that out of the tribe of Levi, and he will eventually ordain the first group of priests a few chapters away from now. You don't have to worry about that. I'm just telling you, when Moses walks into the palace of the Pharaoh, the way that Pharaoh interprets Moses' presence is he is now, Pharaoh considers himself to now be meeting with the high priest of Yahweh. In Pharaoh's mind, Yahweh is a minor god. He's a god of these slave people. Pharaoh is familiar with hundreds of gods. So this is just sort of how he does a business deal. But when Pharaoh walks into, excuse me, when Moses walks into Pharaoh's presence with a handful, maybe a bag that he's carried with him, I don't know, but a handful of this oily black soot in his hands, when he lifts that over his head, he makes eye contact with the Pharaoh because God says, make sure Pharaoh can see you. I want you to be sure that that man knows exactly what happened here. When he lifts his hands over his head, the way that Pharaoh interprets that action is these are the ashes. This is the soot of some kind of sacrifice, a sacrifice probably to Yahweh, considering that Moses is the high priest of Yahweh holding up these ashes in the air. And so when Moses casts them into the air onto the wind, he is doing that, he is speaking a language that the priests, the magicians, and Pharaoh himself speak fluently. It's the way that they do business. It's the way that they interpret the world. It's bizarre to you and me, okay? If I got on this stage and just started throwing ashes at you, the First Baptist Church of Anchorage would kick us out. They'd be like, you can't do that here. We're not going to just rub black stuff all over the carpet, okay? It would weird you out. You would go home. You would find another church that seems normal, probably. But in that context, this is a big move for Moses to make. There's emphasis on this. For a priest to do this is about as culturally normal as a man in the United States to wear a tie to church, just to give you some context. You wouldn't even think twice about it. At True North, we're doing what we can to break that norm, okay? But most places, most places that's normal. 
God's command is very specific. Soot from a kiln. Why use soot from a kiln? What is a kiln? A kiln is like an oven. You use a kiln to bake clay. What do you use a kiln to make? Well, if you have a kiln at your house, you probably use it to make mugs or other cute stuff that you can give to your friends or sell in your Etsy shop, and that's great for you. If you have a kiln at your office at work, you probably use it to make bricks. Do you remember the form of oppression that Pharaoh required the enslaved people of Israel to practice? What was their job? It was to make bricks for him so that he could build his wealth, so that he could build his influence, so he could become more powerful. And at one point, early in chapter 7 of Exodus, he takes away half of the ingredients they need to even do that. The straw that binds that clay together so that it can make reliable bricks is removed from the people of Israel. So when God tells Moses to carry in soot, ash from a kiln, God is not doing that on accident. This is deeply personal to him. God knows all about the suffering of his people. You'll remember from an earlier sermon in this book that we highlighted the very end of chapter 2 of Exodus, where God's people are crying out, and the Bible tells us, Moses communicates to you and I, who wrote Exodus, he says, God saw his people and he knew. He remembered them. That includes seeing and knowing the blazing heat of a thousand kilns. God is intimately familiar with the soot of those kilns. He knows what that soot has cost his people. It's mixed with their sweat. It represents the destruction of their bodies, the loss of their health. Their blood, the tears of their cries for help. And so he decides that soot from a slave kiln will be the perfect catalyst for his judgment on Egypt. Pharaoh stole the Israelites' health from them along with their humanity. Moses lifted his, head, his hand over his head, clutching that soot. And when he did that, when that went high, that representation of all of those slaves, when it was lifted up, Pharaoh and his advisors and his magicians were brought low in an instant. The soot blew through the palace, boils blistered and grew on the skin of the Egyptians in real time. It happened that fast. Blisters just like the ones that God's people suffered from the heat of the brick kilns that they were forced to work. Why did God send boils? He sent boils because his words were not working. He was asking. He was pleading. He was arguing. He was debating. That he was even willing to be patient with Pharaoh to give him all these chances is representative of the mercy of our God. That he didn't just get rid of the Pharaoh and do what, excuse me, do what he wanted to do. Shows us that he's patient, that he's kind. Just like the previous plague, there doesn't come a moment at the end of this where Moses pleads that God remove it. God is now doing damage to the people of Egypt. He's been warning them. He's been showing them. Now he's making it a part of their existence to suffer through the penalty of their oppression of his people. The idol of health in Egypt was supposed to serve these people. Sekhmet was supposed to make sure that this was impossible, that it could never happen. The worship of Sekhmet, the resources given to Sekhmet, the pursuit of health was supposed to guarantee that these Israelites would never have what the Egyptians had for themselves. And we are like that. Our collective cultural idolatry of our own health is a product of our relative wealth. Like the Pharaoh, like his advisors, like his magicians, our ability to keep our hands clean, our ability to exist in relative safety, medicine, Doctors, all of these things are products of the resources that we have. And I think that culturally we've made a decision 
check social media if you don't believe me, but we've decided that health is a worthy pursuit for our whole lives, that it's worth giving everything we have to. We are willing to pay a very high cost to have it. I'll give you just a quick couple of statistics to maybe help this land for you. I don't know if you know this. I did not know this before doing some research this week. In our pursuit of health at any cost, we annually, as Americans in this country, annually we spend more money on health care than the gross domestic profit of all but three nations on the surface of this planet. There are only three countries, and we are one of them, that generate more money than we spend on health care in the United States every year. Only the U.S., China, and Japan had a gross domestic profit larger than the $3.8 trillion that we spend on healthcare annually. And this, this statistic is based on kind of the last five years or so. According to the federal agency, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, our national health expenditure, which is what NHE stands for on that slide, it's just what we spend on being healthy. In 2019, two years after these statistics, the amount of money we spent on health and healthcare in the United States was just under 18% of all of the money spent in the United States economy. 18% of every dollar that we spent on anything in the USA in 2019 was related in some way to keeping people healthy. And this is really only traditional medicine. The, the centers for, for Medicaid and Medicare don't track holistic or natural medicine spending. Uh, they don't track supplements, they don't track diet plans. And for those of you who maybe are excusing yourself from this discussion because you'd rather die in the woods than go to a doctor, uh, they don't also count the cost of dealing with you eventually when things get too bad and you have to get carted into town on the back of a four-wheeler to receive whatever emergency care that you've earned for yourself. Now, I need to give you a caveat here. I feel like I have to be very clear. Those of you who work in medicine, and I know there are at least some of you in the room, you are not the problem. Working in medicine, serving people medically is not a problem. I can say without a doubt that every disciple of Jesus who I know who works in medicine does all that they can to give away as much of their expertise and time and attention as possible. The problem is idolatry. The problem is elevating a good thing, being healthy, to become the ultimate thing. At the highest level, the numbers that I just read to you, they mean something. Where our money goes tells us what we value. It tells us how much we value it. And for some of us, those numbers represent an idol. As we spend and spend on diet plans, supplements, elective surgeries, prescription medications, therapy, salt lamps, crystals, copper bracelets, microdosing, whatever end of the spectrum you are on, we run the risk of exalting ourselves. We run the risk of our self being our idol, our self being our object of worship, and those actions being us just trying to spruce up that idol so that it's nice enough to maybe convince other people to worship it too. This is the sum of all of our mirror selfies. It's the sum of all of our gym workout videos. It's the sum of us needing other people to acknowledge that we have made our body better than it used to be. Church, I'm not saying to you that it's wrong to celebrate God healing you. In the context of community, in your life group, if God has done a miracle in your life, then tell that story. But that is night and day different from exalting yourself and your own will and your own power and your own ability to self-improve. Night and day. And maybe it doesn't feel different to you. If that's the case, that's why we need to have this conversation. Because the most dangerous idols in our lives are the ones that we can't feel. 
the ones that we can't see, the ones that we don't even know we're there until God allows them to slip out of our hands, and then we go, no, 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 I need that. I'm nothing without that. That's how we know what an idol is. When we exalt ourselves, when we lift our bodies up to a position that is not healthy, we are communicating to our world that life, this physical life on this side of eternity, is so important that we can't afford to walk through it with a limp. We don't have the capacity. So enter Jesus. What would he say about this? What does he say about this? He's described as a suffering servant. If that's true, if he is our model for living, if he alone in all of history lived a life that's fully filled, then we should ask ourselves, what does his example communicate to us about how we interact with our own health or lack thereof? I want you to play a little imagination game with me for a second. I think that this will be fun for you, okay? In our shared imagination, just, just if you can, for some of you this is true, okay? But I want you to just play like you are a doctor. Whatever your medical TV show of choice is, if it's House, you can be a snarky doctor in your imagination, that's fine. If it's Grey's Anatomy, you can be uh, an unrealistically handsome doctor in your mind, that's fine. Whatever, you do you, okay? But in our collective brain space here, we're going to imagine that we are physicians for just a second. And it's a Monday morning, and we have clinic, which means we're going to have to see patients. And our first patient is a Middle Eastern man, a man with dark skin, a man who has sort of short, roughly cut hair, a lot of deep laugh lines on his face. And he sits down on the bench or in the chair for an examination, and we begin to take notes on how the patient presents. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read from Isaiah 53, and I want you to just take note, if you can, with me as we walk through this description of what is going on with the patient in our office this Monday morning. The Bible tells us about this man that he grew up like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So if we're taking notes, we're writing down, he's got some stretch marks on his lower back maybe from a, a teenage growth spurt. Looks like he grew quickly at some point. He's not particularly handsome, not the squarest jawline that we've ever seen or the most symmetrical face. So we keep examining him. Verse 3 of Isaiah 53 tells us he was despised, that he was rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and that we esteemed him not. Okay, so what we thought were laugh lines might actually be the product of a lot of crying over a lifetime, a lot of grimacing. This man seems to be a person who's experienced loss, who knows what it feels like to have something removed that he loves. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God, afflicted. As he removes his shirt so that we can begin to examine his abdomen, we see a scar down his side, roughly the entire height length of his torso. Lots of scars on his hands from what appears to be a life of manual labor. He's relatively lean, he looks like he's probably traveled quite a bit on foot in his life. There's sand and salt wedged under his fingernails and his toenails. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And then we begin to examine his hands. Deep, ragged scars on his palms and on the back of his wrists. There's obviously evidence of previous muscle and bone damage. One hand looks to have torn at some point, parallel to his radial and ulnar arteries, which run the length of his forearm. His feet are even worse. It looks like he was impaled through both feet and that at some point there was a significant amount of force, of torque applied to whatever it was that made those wounds. What does Jesus know about health, you ask yourself? 
about giving up a part of himself, about finding a way to exist, about seeing the loss of his own health as something that he might be able to embrace on behalf of other people. He is the great physician, and he holds your health in his hands. That's the message of the plague of boils. God is not just speaking condemnation. He's communicating his sovereignty. Unfortunately, because of the hard-heartedness of the people of Egypt, the form that that sovereignty arrives in is judgment. But it can be peace, and it can be mercy, and it can be compassion, and it can be an invitation into his family. His hands are wounded. They're scarred. These are the hands that hold your health, hands that know full well what it's like to lose something valuable. And the same God who was present with his children as they stoked the kilns of Egypt has now been pierced and broken and has literally bled out for your behalf. Compassion for the sick and afflicted is not new territory for Jesus. In the New Testament book of Mark, in chapter 5 of Mark, Jesus interacts with two women who are suffering a loss of their health. Um, One of them is a young woman. She's bedridden. She's very close to death. At the beginning of this story, her father comes and meets Jesus and begs him, please come to my house and heal my daughter. And Jesus says, I'll go with you. And so as they're walking, we encounter the second woman who's much older. She has a bleeding problem. The Bible says for over a decade, every day, her body has leaked blood in a way that is not healthy to her. So what I want to do quickly as we land the plane here is I just want to show you three truths about Jesus that are going to help counterbalance your temptation to idolize your own health. They're going to put the responsibility of your health back in God's hands. Again, not saying you don't take your vitamins, not saying you don't hit the gym once in a while, but the worship and the preservation of yourself is not ultimately yours. It belongs to God. So Jesus is traveling with a huge crowd of people, Mark tells us. This is the way Mark remembers this happening. Somewhere in the chaos of these people swirling around Jesus, this older woman who's had the bleeding problem for about 12 years, according to Mark, she approaches Jesus. She comes up behind him, specifically. Maybe she doesn't want to be seen. Maybe that's just the easiest way to get to him. But she reaches through that crowd of people. I'm thinking mosh pit at a hardcore concert level of people here, okay? She makes her way through, and she just tags the edge of his clothes. And when she does that, she's healed. Mark says she can feel the change in her body. She can tell the blood is gone. I don't know what she's bleeding out of or into, but something is different. There's a stitching up, a closing of the wound that she can detect in her body, a new strength. At the same time, Mark tells us that Jesus can feel the power go out of him to heal her. And so he stops. Now, Jesus doesn't, he doesn't not know the answer to the question he's going to ask, but he asks it for the sake of the illustration he's going to make, because he's brilliant. Of course he is. But he stops the crowd. He quiets everybody down, and he says, who touched me? Where are you? I want to read their interaction to you. This is Mark 5, 33 and 34. The woman, this is the older woman who'd been bleeding, knowing what had happened to her, she came in fear. She came in trembling. She's scared to death. This guy who had the power to heal her now is calling her out about that. She's like, is that same power going to kill me? Is he going to be mad? Did I steal something? She's just freaking out about this. She fell down before him which is amazing to me. She's, she's strong for the first time in over 10 years, and she falls on her knees. She prostrates herself in front of Jesus, and she tells the whole truth, Mark says, the whole story. I've been bleeding. I've seen all these doctors. I've run out of money. I came to you. You're my only hope. I touched your garment. She's probably apologizing to Jesus for the healing that he's just done in her life. And he says to her, daughter, a woman who's older than him, shows his position in her life, daughter, you, your faith has made you well. So go in peace and be healed of your disease. Be healed. Stay healthy. This isn't temporary. Jesus is saying it's done. Experience what this healing will do for you. Your faith has made you well. Okay, truth number one. If you are a person who has lost enough of your health 
to realize that you've been worshiping it for a long time, you need to know this. Jesus can heal your body. He can. Jesus can heal your body. I'm not here to downplay God's ability to, to exercise his sovereignty over you. The same God who could protect every single Israelite from this plague of boils in the land of Goshen can heal and fix your body. He can. That's the first truth. You are right to have faith in Jesus. You're right to believe that he can do that. And I'll tell you this, it's okay to come to him for healing. You may have heard well-meaning pastors in the past warn you away from coming to God for his good gifts, but I will tell you, if like this woman, your faith tells you Jesus is the only physician who can heal you, that tells me he's in the right position in your life. He's on his throne in your heart. So ask him. He's a king. He says to ask. It's okay to ask other people to ask him to heal you. All of that is good and right. Now back to Mark's story. While Jesus is speaking, literally as he's saying to this woman, go in peace and be healed, Mark says a small group of people run up to this crowd. And these people are coming from the house of the man who initially met Jesus and asked him to go on this walking journey in the first place, the guy whose daughter is dying in her bed at home. They run up to the young, man's, the young woman's father and they tell him the girl has already died. So Jesus is having this incredibly moving moment with this woman. Mark tells us in passing that she's spent all of her money, she's seen every doctor in town, it's driving her crazy, she has no hope. This is an important moment and a man at the edge of the crowd basically gets a text that says, She's gone. Sorry, she's gone. Now Jesus overhears that. He jumps into the middle of that man's grief. And he says, don't be afraid, just believe. Now if I'm that man, I'm thinking, okay, Jesus, I get that faith can heal this old woman of a very slow blood loss that she's had. But are you saying that faith can fix death? Is that what you're trying to say to me? You see, We can't forget that Jesus is on his way to heal this girl. It's his stopping in the road to heal and address the old woman that makes him so late that the young woman dies. They're they're opposed to each other, these actions. This man is feeling angry. He's not just passive. He's not just, oh, God's sovereign, he'll do whatever he wants. He has a very clear agenda that his daughter would live to see another day, and Jesus taking a second to heal an old woman who's probably going to die naturally in a few years anyway is probably pretty frustrating to him. What does Jesus mean? This is an audacious claim for him to make. Is it fair for Jesus to do this? Does it make sense to us for him to prioritize one over the other? Why would that person be healed and not me? Why would God give them something that I need? Why would God operate when they have so much less potential than I do? These are the lies that we tell ourselves, and they're the things that we believe that keep us from ever coming to God to ask for healing in the first place. This is also a story about you and me. The second truth that you need to hear goes with the first, that Jesus does not have to heal your body. He can, he may, but he doesn't have to do that to be good. He is not obligated. He can still be good and let you suffer. He can be good in spite of that diagnosis that you received. He can be good in spite of the accident that happens at work that takes away one of your faculties or abilities. He can be good in spite of the hereditary dysfunction that you inherit from the broken biology of your ancestors. How can he do that? Well, that's where the third truth about Jesus comes in. So I just want to read you the end of the story, beginning in verse 37. They continue on to the man's house. The daughter is dead there. Mark says, Jesus allowed no one to follow him except for Peter, James, and John. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. This is the man who came to get Jesus in the first place. And Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping, wailing loudly. Ancient Israelites knew how to mourn and grieve. We do it quietly and politely. They leaned into that ache, okay? When Jesus had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion? Why are you weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. 
That seems a little rude, doesn't it? I mean, at bare minimum. But what is Jesus communicating in that? He's saying, I told you I would heal her. I'm not done yet. I'm not finished. So they laughed at him, verse 40, like you did. But he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and the three who were with him, and he went in where the child was, and he took her hand, and he said, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, arise, get up. And immediately, that's Mark's favorite word if you've read the Gospel of Mark, immediately the girl got up and began walking. I love his explanation because she was 12 years of age, as if children in all of human history have resisted bedtime. As soon as she's healed, she's like, I'm back, I'm up, I'm good, I need a glass of water. Can I watch a movie? Can I stay up later? Okay, she's out of bed, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Truth number three is that Jesus will heal your soul. He can heal your body. He doesn't have to, but he will heal your soul. That's a guarantee to you. When you feel the idol of health stripped out of your hands by a shocking diagnosis, or if it just slowly slips through your fingers as your 60s become your 70s, if you follow Jesus, you can afford to let it go. It will hurt. It will terrify you, but you don't actually need it. And what Jesus can do is he can give it back to you. He doesn't have to, but he may. The best news is that the eternal part of you, the soul that inhabits your body, which is broken, he will heal that. No one comes to Jesus for new life and gets turned away, ever. Jesus enters the deepest parts of our souls, and he says the same thing to us that he said to that little girl. He says, arise, get up. I'm not done yet. You who are asleep, wake up. And the same response will happen to the people around us that that girl's family experienced. Immediately there will be amazement on behalf of other people. That's what happens in the water of baptism, church, if you don't know that. That's why it's corporate. That's why we participate, is we are watching the representation of a person to whom Jesus has said, get up. A person who hops out of bed and starts to walk again and has life in a way that they haven't in too long to remember. Our souls answer that call. That's what the gospel does. That's the operative effect of Jesus. It's the first step into his, of him into anybody's life is to heal their broken soul. So to, to come back to Egypt, Yahweh took the health of the Egyptians from them. He did it on purpose. He wanted to show them that sickness and health are his alone to give and to take. Yet if you were to look back at verse 12, you don't have to do it now, but you'll remember Pharaoh's prayer remains the same. The goal of Pharaoh is the same. He still wants nothing more than the strength to resist Yahweh again. He doesn't want to repent. He's not looking for a way to divest himself of his pride and reach a point where he can confess that God is who he says he is and be saved and redeemed and come on to God's team instead of being his opponent. All Pharaoh wants is to prove himself to himself and his gods and his people. And so the Lord answers that, and he does it, and he hardens Pharaoh. He puts Pharaoh in a place where, in spite of this plague of boils, he is still ready to resist God. And that is God's judgment on Pharaoh. Pharaoh resists his sixth opportunity to repent, and he and Yahweh return to their corners to prepare for round seven of this fight. So church, here's what I want your takeaway to be today. I want you to learn from his example. I'm talking about Pharaoh. I want you to see played out for you on the screen of Scripture that pride and self-defense and resistance lead you to death. They lead you to death. And along the way, on the road to death, you, like Pharaoh, will experience more and more grief and hardship and loss at the hands of your own ego. 
May we not reject our soul's physician in the name of our own selves. Even when our physical health is taken from us, may we trust that God knows what he's doing because he'll heal and preserve our soul, the eternal part of our self that never goes away. May we come to Jesus for the healing of our souls and may we trust him even when he allows our suffering to continue. I want to pray for you. Father, thank you for your love in our lives and thank you, God, for, um, for choosing in the person of Jesus to inhabit all of our sufferings personally. I pray that you would teach us a similar compassion for each other, that we would understand, God, that we would live out a, um, an attitude of mercy for those who have lost specifically their health, people whose bodies seem to be their own enemy, people who are suffering through cancers and injuries and autoimmune deficiencies and every form of mental illness, God, would you allow this church, your church, to be an extension of you? Would we be people who care, people who can give some time, people who can give attention, people who are willing to listen? God, I pray that you would heal those who are sick. I ask you to do that that you would work in their midst, in the midst of this body, that you would make your body a body that's equipped as you see fit to do your work on the earth. We love you, Father. We trust you with our lives. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.